Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Nick Briggs, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the devilish task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally devilish three person discussion panel, including our so called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There is also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, we also have our semi-casual fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Happy October. Yes, indeed. Happy October. We are drinking beer. It's almost like we're having our own little Oktoberfest. We just don't have the uh, lederhosen. Well, these two don't. (laughs) Yeah. Before we get to talking about the book, let's talk briefly about our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of these, that you use them as ballast for your submarines. (laughs) Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, and Jay Barry, which is spelled B-A-R-R-Y. Sorry, Jay. Yes. Thank you, gentlemen. (laughs) Thanks, guys. (laughs) The sound recording equipment that you're hearing us on tonight is brand new. Ooh, and it has been paid for by these wonderful people, plus by donations from the Video Junkyard podcast. So thanks to all of you. you, We're sounding so much better, unless I fuck this up in the edit. Okay. No. I will. We also have our Goodreads... Shit. Let's see how that turned out. We also have our Goodreads discussion group. Where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts, you can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now with our discussion of the third story of Season 9, The Sea Devils, or, if you're reading the book, The Sea hyphen Devils. <laughs> Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Sea Devils, adapted by Malcolm Hulk from a script that aired from 22671 to 4171, published by Target Books in October 1974. As of this recording in October of 2019, the title is currently out of print and is available as an unabridged audiobook, 144 pages. Yes. Now imagine, 
How wonderful it must have been to be a kid in the UK 45 years ago to this date, because this book and The Demons came out at the same time. Mm. Whoa, talk about just splendor. Yes, I know. (laughs) Naturally, because three years had passed between the show's transmission and the novelization, and because it's a Malcolm Hulk book, there are differences galore and a whole lot more characterization in this book. See what I did there? Yes, Mm, I I, I do try from time to time. But the original televised story is worth noting on its own for a number of reasons. One, as we said last time, it was filmed as the second story of the season, but it aired in third place. Mainly because the crew realized it would be better to film this story in October rather than wintertime, because it was at sea. And it also allowed the stories of this season to alternate between Earthbound and space-based. Yeah. And yes, indeed, the next one is indeed space-based. Uh, it was originally going to be called The Sea Silurians, but someone finally wrote to the production office to tell them there's no way that reptilian life would have survived in that era, much less evolved into an intelligent species. And they missed a good pun. Well, which was what? The Silurians. Oh. Oh. So they received it. <laughs> Stern letter from a scientist telling them yes. this was the implausible part of Several it? Several scientists, right. yeah. Because there's plausibility in science fiction sometimes. Fair enough. I mean, obviously. Just not in Silurians. So that caused Malcolm Hulk to change the title and to give the Doctor a brief line of dialogue in the televised version, saying that the scientist who originally named them should rightly have called them the Eocenes, Apparently, by the time he wrote both the cave monsters in this book, Hulk had discovered that that era wouldn't have worked either. So the line and any other identifier between Beyond Sea Devil, with a hyphen, is missing from the book. Of course, when both races returned in 1984, the Silurians referred to themselves as Silurians, and suddenly nobody gave a rat's ass anymore. (laughs) In the new series, they're not called anything. Which is brilliant, I hmm. think. But they also look like the Jem'Hadar from DS9. So they're not. How are they referred to? They're they're not those guys. They're just it's referred just... to as the reptilian race that ruled the Earth before humanity hmm. came along. Fair or enough. by name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In the new adventures, they're called Earth reptiles, which is kind of weird because aren't, we have <laughs> Earth reptiles. Yeah. Hmm. All right. The Royal Navy gave a rat's ass, of course, about its image on screen. <laughs> So they love that transition. So they volunteered to waive their usual royalty fees and even gave the crew unprecedented access to ships and active service personnel as extras so long as they were depicted positively on screen. And, of course, they are. Let me take a swift drink. Uh, Their their bases seem fairly easy to penetrate, I'll say. Well, yeah, but that's not the problem of the Navy. I mean, if you think about it, in the book, they're caught fairly quickly every time that happens. Fair enough. Yeah, it still works. Friend of the podcast, Tom Hodden, hello Tom, was worried we Americans wouldn't know what a sea fort was, such as the one the Masters imprisoned in. Uh, he says they're exactly what they sound like, structures built in the war as defensive measures against the Nazi invasion. Most were metal buildings on stilts, but some were a little more substantial, such as the one the Masters in. So, uh, hello, kitty. You can hear our kitty... Um, bell in the background and if you can't then this then this equipment is really good Mm -hmm. yeah several are still standing along the english channel 
and the shipping lanes. And he says he can even see one from his house, just like Sarah Palin. (laughs) I'm sorry, Tom, I'm kidding about that one. You actually can see it from your house, but you're not Sarah Palin, are you? He also says that back in the 70s, a family took over a couple of these and tried to declare themselves a sovereign nation. What a douche. Yes, exactly. Didn't really work, but there you go. Something else that didn't work quite so well, (laughs) I'm just the king of the segue tonight, was the incidental music written by Malcolm Clark. Although Clark would go on to score many Doctor Who stories in the 80s using nothing but electronic instruments, his score for the Sea Devils was literally ahead of its time and over the heads of the audience and the production team. To this day, fans either love it or hate it, but no one would say that it's at all subtle. In fact, I played you a bit of it before yeah, we started, it's... and you like bits of it, but other bits are quite intrusive. What you played was terrific. Yeah, it's yeah. wonderful, but I could see how it would distract from the story on screen. Well, so. the, the way the producer told it, it was like, how could you tell? In fact, this is the problem with the next story, too. How can you tell the difference between a musical cue and a sound effect? Mm-hmm. So if the Sea Devils have a a gun that sounds like this, and that's a musical cue, how do you tell the difference? Which is a very good point. Two more funny stories about this story. Apparently, Katie Manning, while filming a scene on this beach, did a backflip over a fence, landed in a mud puddle, got up, and her skirt fell down. Ah. John Pertwee said he'd never heard a laugh like that before in his life, and it was one of the funniest things he'd ever seen. So say, was this a planned stunt or just a prep no. fall? She's <laughs> just that <laughs> talented. She's just that talented, and Katie Manning, unfortunately, is just that blind. She has some difficulties seeing. And on a more serious note, here's something interesting. The Ministry of Defense came by the production office after the story had aired because they feared the production team had somehow gotten hold of some new top-secret designs they were working on for their subs. Apparently, the designer had been simply kit-bashing with some model sub-kits and had decided to make a more streamlined design than the real thing, and that happened to look exactly like the new top-secret mm. designs. Hmm. Truth is stranger than fiction, hmm. as they say. As for the book, it's a Hulk book. Apart from the fact that this one was translated into Portuguese... What more is there to say except to read the back cover and to let our listeners hear some of the stirring music. Now, Dalton, you did it last time. I did. So I think it's time for Allison to give us her dulcet tones. It is, but I anticipated this because I've gotten out of it several episodes in a row. And I will say ahead of time, I find it extremely pretentious when Americans say whilst. Okay. Therefore, I'm stipulating in advance. I'm reading it aloud. I am not... I'm going to say whilst. I'm not being a poser. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think we can... I think we'll believe it. <laughs> whilst visiting the Master, who has been exiled to a luxurious castle prison on a small island, Doctor Who and Joe Grant learn that a number of ships have vanished in the area. Whilst investigating these mysterious disappearances, <laughs> Joe and the Doctor are attacked by a sea devil capital S, capital D, hyphen, one of a submarine colony distantly related to the Silurians. Soon they discover that the Sea Devils plan to conquer the Earth and enslave humanity, aided and abetted by the Master. What can Doctor Who do to stop them? (laughs) I like what you did there. Yes. So, first impressions of the Sea Silurians, or the Sea Devils, or whatever the fuck they're called. What do we think about? The Sea Lurians. The Sea Lurians, indeed. 
It's Holy shit, what were they doing out there? Moving equipment? You haul sounded like? Yeah, sounded like. So, our first impression of, of the, the Sealerians. The, the books or the, the book or the creatures? Either. Yes. <laughs> I love the opening to the book. Okay. I loved the part where everyone dies on the boat. It was fantastic. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, that does sound macabre, but I thought it was that. a terrific little short story, and I was curious about how much, if any, of it was in the episode. None. That entire first sequence. In fact, that musical cue that I played you with the Doctor Who theme being uh, quoted in the music, that's our first shot of the Doctor and Joe going across the waves to see the Master. That's where the story starts in the book. So, yeah, that's all brand new. I thought it was a terrific little prologue. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of walk, 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 run, run, run location shift in here, where I actually expected more monster action. Um, monster on monster action? Monster on doctor action. Monster on monster action. Mo- master on monster action. Ooh. But, um, yes. and I'm not complaining exactly, but I thought there would be a lot more of the creatures. And yeah. we spent a lot of time in planes, trains, and automobiles, and rowboats, and submarines, and uh, lifted bicycles. Uh, lifted going, bicycles. Going back and forth between the, the prison island and the naval base, and I think the village that they shoved off from initially, and mm-hmm. then down to the Silurian base. But we don't see the creatures that often in a way that I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, and the creatures don't seem to have vessels, which I thought was also interesting. There's this terrible threat, but did I yeah. miss where they have... Ships. ships or submarines? No. They just seem to be swimming around, maybe not that fast. They swim They swim around. They don't seem that frightening compared to the last time we saw the Silurians. Yeah, I could get that. I could see that. And I think part of it is because what happens there a lot, well, what's happening there is that on screen they're trying to keep you from seeing too much of them because they want you to be surprised by the sight of them. But they are guys in masks, essentially. And, in fact, they were naked guys in masks, or rather guys in naked sea devil outfits, because the director realized that uh, they must be naked, so he had them come up with these kind of fishnet outfits to put over them, which is just silly. But, yeah, you're, you're right. There's not a lot of them in it. So it's like a sort of reptilian version of the Love Is cartoons. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little bit. New children, but sort of strategic little little tummies. Oh, God. I hadn't thought about those in years. I'm sorry to... uh, That's nauseating. I'm sorry to remind you. That's okay. I'm I'm living in the age of Trump. Every day it nauseates me. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. There's not a lot of them, uh, Dalton. Yeah, I... I agree. I love the beginning. I think it's a great way to set up the story. It did remind me of, excuse me, and they even mention it a little. There was a story that we read about the ship that that disappeared. Mary Celeste. The Mary Celeste. Mm -hmm. And they kind of come back and reference it here, saying that's kind of a similar thing that happened. Um, But yeah, I kept wanting more of them to be there. Um, I almost wish that the story had taken place out on the oil rig mm-hmm. as opposed to on the island. It was supposed to. Run, that, I feel like that would have been more interesting yeah. than running back and forth on this island. And much more eerie, if you think about yeah. it, being menaced by creatures on an oil rig and you can't get anywhere yeah. off. Right. And they're in the water. The because even, even the scene where the Doctor and Joe go out to the oil rig mm-hmm. and they 
encounter one of the sea devils with the the other worker that was there that kind of mm-hmm. was in shock. Yes. Even that scene itself was pretty pretty well done and like yeah. yes i want more of this yeah. but then it's just like oh we're going back to the island and we're gonna go run back and forth between the prison and the naval base again it's like but where are these creatures that are supposed to be taking over and it's like <laughs> i know that a lot of this has to do with kind of setting up the master and how he's mm-hmm. gonna work with them or against them or whatever to his own plot. Yeah. It's a bit more of a master story than it yeah. is a sea Silurian story, isn't it? Yeah. They're scary so, when they are burning things mysteriously from below. Burning yeah. through the holes of the different kinds of ships and the oil rig structure as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you know that it's just lizards with laser guns, that's somehow less <laughs> yeah. mysterious. Leave them lizards yeah. with laser guns. <laughs> well, they're, and they're not even infallible. They're not, that are, you know, it takes yeah. one shot from a gun to kill it. They're so not. Yeah. They're they're not very hard. No. They're a bit entitled. They expect humanity to just <laughs> fall into line beneath their oh, boot heel. But just like my students. They're not really willing to work for it. <laughs> yeah, just like my students. Yeah. I love you all. Yeah. Yeah, so, and in a lot of ways it has to... The story has to do with kind of the reckoning of what the Master did and how he was kind of placed on this island to deal with his actions from before yes and kind of how humanity could have killed him but they didn't they chose to let him live but he's living in luxury yeah. and even as annoying as it is for a time lord like him to be stuck in this place like life imprisonment is so thousands of years yeah so. i'm wondering i was wondering if that was a reference to um it's going to be a very roundabout way of trying to call it the memory so in the 80s, I had a Guinness Book of World Records okay, <laughs> that I can listed, it. I heard it was the most expensive prison ever or the most expensive prisoner ever. And it was about mm-hmm. how the last Nazi prisoner in Europe was, I think, Rudolf Hess. Yes. And he was kept in this historic home or historic yes, fortress he until he was the last surviving one. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was actually demolished so it wouldn't become a sort of shrine or destination. Right. I do not remember the name of it or where it was. I can't remember Germany or Austria. But I thought I it was maybe a reference to that because it was a, hmm. it was luxurious as prisoners for notorious war criminals. Yeah, yeah. And he did live there himself in his last okay. year because all the other prisoners had died. So I thought there was some. And he died. He died sometime in the seventies. So I thought this might be a reference. It could to be this mm. terrible, dangerous perpetrator of genocide who's actually living quite comfortably with wall-to-wall carpeting and a ru- carpeting and a ruin. Well, machine. easy enough. Let's uh, let's look on Wikipedia and see what it has to say. To the internet. To the internet. <laughs> Rich Nazi died in seventies. I think it was Rudolf Hess. Rudolf Hess. Okay, that sounds right, because I'm remembering something similar. And it could very well be that, because that's a, that's another thing. Hulk makes a lot more reference to the Master's punishment being kind of a load on the taxpayers. Mm-hmm. You don't hear that on screen. And in fact, the, uh, the whole visit between the Doctor and the Master on screen takes place over like two or three minutes. Whereas in the book, there he's there for a little while. And you think, yeah, that's what you'd expect if you're traveling all the way out there. Spandau right? Prison is what I was thinking of. Spandau Prison. In West Berlin. Right. Or near Western Berlin. Right. That's it. 
That's exactly it. So I th- there was so much content, like a half a page at the beginning about how annoyed members of the military and the public were that he was living more comfortably than most of them. And yes. they wanted him um, executed uh, because it was more cost efficient, yes. which is a bit brutal. But I, I can understand where the sentiment might have been coming from if this is a person they were thinking of. Yeah, precisely. Let me see when he was actually in prison there because he died in 1987. So that's significantly mm-hmm. later. 1966. So, yeah, I think, yeah, between 1966 and 87. But not the John fun loving fellow that the master is. Yeah, exactly. And come to think of it, if you look at Spandau Prison, mm. yeah, that's what the master's castle looks like. Yeah, that sounds just about right. Yeah. Well spotted. Very good. You've earned your pay for the week. In pizza. It's yes. very... Tony <laughs> orders terrific pizza. It's first uh, rate. It's okay. No, it's really it's good. It's Sarpino's. I can't, I can't take credit for it. We should get a sponsorship. Oh, <laughs> we should so get a sponsorship. Oh, yes. Sorry, I just had a hard-on <laughs> right up here. You just had a Homer Simpson moment. I had a hard-on mm, in my wallet there for a sponsorship. minute. <laughs> but then where else would it be? <laughs> mm. Oh, my God. Anyway. Pistol whip. Oh, God, let's uh, get off this. Um, Well, I think that's what we have been doing. So, yeah, where do we want to start? Mm. With the master? Since he's just come back. Um, (laughs) From Philly? (laughs) (laughs) I had issue with how easily he was able to manipulate people. Yes. (laughs) Like, so you know he has a history of doing this, and mm -hmm. yet you still... Like, well, you have guards that are anti-hypnosis trained, supposedly. Yeah, sequester that motherfucker. Like, <laughs> send dogs in with stuff on their backs to feed him. Like, now, just don't let him have the, any the human contact. to pay for a very elaborate dog chef training. Why the hell not? If they're doing all this, <laughs> right? To like lock him away in this castle that's got solitary confinement. They have all these cameras on him, like. So I read this quite tired, and there are a couple of key plot points that I think were probably obvious, but went over my head. Okay, such as? So is the master managing to hypnotize anyone at all, or just sort of lie to them effectively? Lying to them effectively. But I think that he was yeah. charming people, Yeah. but he wasn't actually successful in commanding them to submit. Yeah, because his guards are all... Well, I mean, most of them so are immune to the hypnotism. Are they truly... Hypnosis resistant, or is that a story that the master made up? Well, that's the thing. In the televised version, that guard that they send in is the um, the test guard. It's the test guard. Mm-hmm. I am, yeah. my, my, my mind is gone. Sorry. <laughs> that was stupendous. I will start <laughs> all over again. I will start all over again. Good God. Toxic cloud. I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, oh God! Sorry. I'm sorry. I don't. I didn't mean to shame you, but then I. Could. But you did. But oh, I that's can't okay. go by without consequences. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Oh, Jesus <laughs> Lord! Oh God! Anyway, spiking like crazy. All right. Um, the guard that they send in is the test case. That's what I was trying to say. The test case. Uh, they do say that he is resistant and almost falls prey to it. Um, wait, no. I'm feeling all confused now. I I haven't had a chance to watch this one He truly was hypnotized and the master was having him perform hypnosis resistance. Right. No. But I'm not sure we got a definitive explanation. No, because Trenchard 
Trenchard is definitely not hypnotized, which is the right. tragedy of that character. But he is convinced. Yeah, he right. is convinced. Because yeah. he's got a very, it's basically more of a Jedi mind trick than hypnosis because he's got a very weak mind and he's very much wanting to do something to make his career, which has just been slapdash up to this point. I thought he had a terrific character arc. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, God, especially that ending. Mm. That's new to the book. Man, that's tra- that, that mm. was some tra- good tragedy. Oh, I love that bit because I was like, oh my God, he forgot to take the safety off. And then the fact oh. that the doctor and The like, doctor takes quietly it off. takes it off so that he can have a hero's death but the, the posthumously. I still didn't of, like him, but I'm an asshole. Yeah. But the delusion of grandeur, but he truly is trying to be self-sacrificing. Really he is. is following through and earning it, mm-hmm. and then doesn't, and yeah. That he honestly thinks that there are foreign invaders, and that the Master is trying to help. And that's the big tragedy of that character. It's probably one of Hulk's best characters, mm-hmm. because, Jesus, you usually don't care about these faceless middlemen. In fact, the guy who comes in to run the prison After, afterwards um, who's constantly eating. With his sweets. That, <laughs> yes. That's generally the kind of uh, civil servant we get in Doctor Who. Trenchard, though, oh. Dick's, Terrence Dix does a lot of sympathetic civil servants, I feel like. Mostly on other planets. That's true. That's true. But not really Earthbound ones, weirdly. Oh. I mean... Yeah, more the over-earnest alien functionary, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're still thinking about Alpha Centauri, aren't we? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm actually... <laughs> no, I'm yes. thinking of this as kind of a stock Terrence Dick character... Terrence Dick's character of, of a... Oh. Of an assistant or... Some assistant or oh, wait, lieutenant. That would be Terrence and, Dix anyway. Yeah. That's Brian Hales. Because he's not going to write him until the next time we get Peladon. Mm. Ugh, Peladon. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> what else? Let's see. No, so I'd we've forgotten Peladon never existed. Well, thank God for that. Um, well, it was another castle. It. It I didn't larger. find it offensive, just forgettable. Well, that's all right, because <laughs> the Princess of Peladon is in another castle. <laughs> Did she get lost? No, no. It's a video game reference. Oh, yeah. it's, a, it's a Mario Well, that's what I reference. thought, and then I thought, surely, no. uh, sorry. Yes. I, I would like to go on the record saying I did get it the first time, and then I yes. doubted myself. And don't call me Shirley. Oh, you have such beautiful hair. <laughs> it really oh my is. God. Someone asked me today if I painted my fingernails to match my hair. Is it that... really is a stunning aesthetic. It's terrific. Oh, God. Well, maybe I'll keep it then because it is kind of nice. That is a really weird question to ask, though. Isn't it, though? She was the only one who ever remarked on my nails today, apart from Dalton, who I saw on the train. As we were comparing. Comparing <laughs> what's on my other hand. Yeah. What's on my other hand? What is this? What is this weird thing? Yeah, that's a that's a shout-out to Simply Now Logical, by the way. She never listens to this podcast, though. Okay, um... Even though I really want her to. The Master. This really is more of a Master story. Do we like what we get of the Master in this? I did a lot. Yeah, did you? But I've liked all the Master stories I've read in terms of how the Master is characterized and presented. Okay. There might have been missteps here and there, but I, 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 I think that everyone who has written him has brought something amusing to the table. Mm-hmm. His yeah. energy always comes through. And yes. his sort of... <laughs> Playful maniacism, should we call yeah, it? Yeah, I can so, see that. Yeah, I don't think there's anything new added here, but I think it's definitely spot on to what we've 
we're used to reading and it, yeah. it's enjoyable. Well, what I find interesting is Hulk is kind of presaging the relationship we get between the master and the doctor, or I should say the mistress and the mm. doctor later when she's trying to get his friendship back by, you know, going back to non-criminal ways. And you get the sense of, yeah, they really were good friends once because the doctor is truly coming out here to make sure he's okay. Which I thought went right. from, in the Master's first appearance, something like, oh yes, I think we were in school at the same time and had lunch together once, or something like that, <laughs> to we were inseparable for several years. Yes. It seems to retroactively get deeper and deeper. Just a little bit. So, as opposed to, yeah, I think I recognize that guy. Maybe. <laughs> well, if you think about it, I mean, that's continued with the Master, right? We get, the new series says he's been driven crazy by the sound of drums in his ears all of his life this this master does not have the sound of drums in his ears no. he's just crazy because he, he loves it he wouldn't be that over earnest he's no. not be that tormented no i mean i don't want to get into joker stuff because everybody else is talking about no, it and i'm no, tired you. of hearing and reading about it i appreciate although that. i've read about it some so obviously it has worked as a as blog <laughs> bait but there is something about the modern master of way overthinking a fun character yes. and making him far remember her far too over earnest and tormented that's true when you have not seen the mistress yet have you no i'm i'm generally aware but no i haven't seen this that's episode right yet. yeah so the last one you encountered was the john sims master and yeah i'm not saying it's bad it's just not the it's, same character it's not the same character i agree it's a little too crazy and manic to be the same character even though the mistress is crazy and manic but in a very delgado one way if that makes sense yeah it's very much Roger Delgado and not um, nuttier than squirrel shit Anthony Ainley. So speaking of uh, Super Mario references, I was but reading that, Twitter that, that, last that, night. Yes. Someone <laughs> <laughs> commenting on how much they love Bowser because he's not obsessed with power and money, but with all these different pursuits. Like, I think I'm going to race go-karts, and I think I'm going to do this or that thing for fun. And he's... Zestful for experiences, and there is a funness to the master at this point where, mm-hmm. yes, he kills a lot, but he doesn't mean anything by it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so she just happened to be in the way. It's actually yeah. really hard to pull that off, because we've yes. had other sort of sadistic species mm-hmm. that were no fun at all. Right. Who wanted to torment the humans or some other species... Um, uh, you know, kick them in the face for fun and whatnot. <laughs> like and you do. It was just a slog to read. It wasn't yeah. fun, and it's actually very hard to act, to, to perform, and to write a character it like really that. Is. It was both uh, sadistic and fun, and sort of that balance of it's supposed to be a sadistic character, but you don't actually do anything. But you don't have the character do anything that's actually that dark. Yeah. Sort of mm-hmm. like the, the 63 Batman concept oh, of the yeah. elaborate prank. Oh, God, More yes. so than the actual murder scheme. Are we talking about the pull, pulling a boner story? Well, just more <laughs> the, the idea that the, the comics... That <laughs> the idea of the comics code doesn't let... Doesn't allow those comics to just show outright murders anymore. True. Or actual violence. Yeah. And all the crimes have to be more like capers. And even though That's the doctors... Right. I mean, the master of capers do involve attempted world domination and genocide, mm. he still manages to do them with a fun verb. Yes, <laughs> that, that is true. Captures that same aesthetic. Yeah, and unfortunately we're going to see that go out of the character later, which is truly unfortunate. I mean, we do get a very manic actor playing him later, but this kind of, I think you called it uh, sincerity. 
isn't there until we get Missy again. And then Missy is... I love Michelle Gomez. I really wish they'd bring that iteration of the the master back because... Lovely. But yeah. um, We do get a lot of him in here, which is awfully nice. What about Joe Grant? Because Dalton has been slowly coming around on I, Joe Grant. I never disliked her. I it's know just there was but... never anything for her to fucking do. And she actually, again, has something to do in this book. She, she does indeed. She isn't just being taken as prisoner and having to be rescued. She's, you know, stealing bicycles <laughs> on her own that was uh, to, to chase after the doctor and you know um escaping from the prison or at least attempting to escape and mm-hmm. causing mischief of her own while she's trying to figure out what the hell's going on right um yeah i think this is another step in the right direction of the type of character i want joe to be because we had a slew of stories there that were just like Benjamin God damn it, she's just another damsel <laughs> yes, in distress. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. It was kind of like that. I I definitely agree. How about you? What do you think of Josephine Grant? I think she's definitely allowed to demonstrate competence a lot more and seems to have a lot of fun mm-hmm. in this story overall. Yeah, the, the bicycle theft was amusing. How could we lower the stakes from stealing a rowboat? It might have been a boat with an outboard motor. Yeah. <laughs> Still a bicycle. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Um, Once again, a lot of the Jamie vibe with her oh, yeah. in this story. Oh, very much Thinking so. on her feet, on the fly, flying by the seat of the pants. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Is everyone in the Navy stupid? <laughs> uh, well, that's the weird thing, isn't it? Because you'd think that, uh, <laughs> you'd think that they were kind of, um, they said that they wanted to be shown as, depicted as, positive, but they are kind of bumbling in this a little bit. Well, and there was the amusing scenario in which she makes some kind of crack about you people don't really know what you're doing and that's what makes the particular navy officer in that uh scene completely lose it out of all proportion of being dealt a very mild insult well and i thought that was actually a reasonably insulting portrayal that he was that ruffled if you will well it could be that he sees her as jesus it could be he doesn't see her as Jesus. It could be that he sees the her as... Christ figure is so overdone in science fiction. Jesus God. <laughs> it could be that he sees her as a representative of a rival organization. Yes, Which yes. he would be, except... Yes. But it was amusing how much he was rattled by yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. We we do the Navy does kind of stand in for unit in this in a very in a very direct way. Which is nice, really. I mean it's nice to have you know, a stand-in for the Brigadier without having the Brigadier or having to deal with Mike Yates and some... Well, we can't have a unit anymore that doesn't believe the Doctor when he talks about alien invasions. Yes. Everyone at Union... At Union. Everyone in the Labor Union (laughs) at Unit (laughs) has seen and believes that that sort of thing is possible. So it was a bit of a, a way, I think, to reset to... Yeah. Competent officers who don't believe that there are sea lizards invading because that's not a thing that generally happens. Although there's the issue you always have in some kind of sci-fi universe where by this point the world has seen so much stuff that everyone has seen many species of aliens try to take over London and they should all be open to those possibilities now. Yeah, and I've never gotten the new series insistence that we would just say it was a hoax and it was... A cover-up and all that. It's like, no, not with that many 
people but seeing that. I can see why it was useful within this story to yeah. have a new set of characters. <laughs> Talk sense. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's a point. Well, and also just they and they even for voiceover work. They even they even mention in the book that you know this is kind of during the Cold War, so of course it's the Russians. Mm-hmm. Of course it's not aliens when it's people that live on this planet, right? Exactly. Like, duh. <laughs> Our enemy, the Ruskies, the Kamis. Of course it's them. It's not fish people. What are you talking about? Fish people. <laughs> How could it be fish people? Well, although Red Scare is overdone, it's more likely to be the communists and the fish people in our personal experience. Well, <laughs> remember, right. Hulk himself was communist, so he wouldn't be talking about that as a threat anyway. No. No. He'd be more interested in... In fact, I'm kind of surprised he Imperialist gives the, reptile people. Yes, I'm surprised yes. he gives the, the Navy such a good treatment, given that he probably was dead set against them in some ways. Yeah, how much of that was his choice, though, versus producers? That's true. BBC. That is true. Especially if they were getting the Navy to uh, give them all this stuff for free. Right. Which is awfully nice. <laughs> like swag and stuff. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, the, the, there is... Surplus an, backpacks. No, but there is an amusing story about, um, during the filming of this, that they had a ship that was about to be junked for scrap. And they got a call from the Navy saying that uh, the compass was gone. The huge, big mm. compass at the very front of the ship was gone. <laughs> and Barry Letts thought, okay. So he called John Pertwee, who used to be in the Navy. <laughs> and he said, John, did you take this? And John Pertwee happened said, to collect that. a souvenir? Well, yes, I did. Scrapping the, the, the thing. Can't court-martial me for it, it now. Feels, I'm a civilian. <laughs> but as it turns out, they had to, you know, they have to account for every part that was scrapped. So he had to take it back. Do they, do they repo the compass from him? I guess so. But Barry Lutz said it must have taken hours for him to go in and unscrew <laughs> this thing and then carry it. The master the criminal. Exactly. Right. It wasn't me. It was the master. Can't blame him for trying. Yeah, uh. exactly. <laughs> it wasn't me. It was the master. <laughs> I know. So I thought that the sea devils became significantly less scary once the doctor and the master were actually down there negotiating at their base, and they were so emotionally changeful. Oh, yeah. we're going to use the doctor as our as a representative through whom we will negotiate. No, let's have him executed instead. <laughs> well, let's have you both executed. Let's kill them all. No, let's let's use them again for negotiations. And they did not seem to have a very good master plan. Would you say they had the attention span of a fish? The little plastic castle was always a terrible, <laughs> angering surprise. <laughs> so often we've had, well, we've had two main kinds of evil alien rulers, whether they were attempting to invade Earth or merely riding her over their own planet or someone else's. Right. Um, either those who are tremendously clever and inventive and always two steps ahead of their enemies until the very end, mm. or those who were terrifying because they were primitive and single-minded and you really couldn't reason with them or tempt tempt them Mm. and we don't have either one of those here so they weren't really that intellectually scary they weren't smart enough or simple enough to be frightening and i think another thing probably that you noted is there's a lack of differentiation and individualization in them in the Silurian story, we had the old Silurian, the young Silurian, yes. and the scientist. Quite distinct. We had the, and they were given names by Hulk at that point. Yeah. Here we just have, 
you know, King Crab the or whatever leader. his name is. And then a, someone comes in and says, I'm the new leader. We're going to do this. <laughs> and it's like there's no there's no personality to these Well, things. it doesn't seem like they would be able to succeed in doing it. So they don't actually seem that scary, which makes the end... If I understand it, and I almost certainly do not understand it correctly, <laughs> seem like something of an overreaction. All right, does the doctor actually kill them all? Um, well, well, he blows up the base that they're in, and then he seals off whatever it was that they were coming out of. So he kind of does kind of, exactly but... the same thing the brigadier did last time, which is why he feels so bad about it. Which is quite a switch that should be addressed more. Yeah, if he I is agree. suddenly okay with this. Well, he's not suddenly okay. I mean, at the very mm-hmm. end of the book, you see that the doctor's really kind of upset yeah. that he's had to take this on, but he's learned through very harsh experience that the Silurians and their cousins are not someone you can really reason with. Mm-mm. Not when their ire is up. And in this case, their ire is very much up. They are, they're very much tasting chum. They're ready to kill us all and under those circumstances especially with the master egging them on it's a weird beat because they don't seem actually capable of killing us all they don't do they no fact, i mean they it, even talk about them kind of interrogating the sailors like how many yes. people are there what kind of weapons do you have exactly. it seems like uh, a, what are we getting ourselves into a tremendously brutal overreaction mm-hmm. you know that may be a point Except we don't want the sea devils to get to the point where the Silurians got and actually release a virus, say, into the ocean that would get into the food chain but wouldn't affect them or the fish. It would just affect anyone who eats fish. That would actually take out um, uh, the land land lovers pretty well. It would take a while. Um, I mean, with my love for sushi, I'd be done in a week. (laughs) But... They don't actually threaten to do anything interesting like that. They're just going to swim at you, bite your ankles. If you are boating in that area, <laughs> it's going to be a problem. But right. I, I think that's a mismatch. That might. I they're they're not the Daleks. They're not the Cybermen. They're not the Machine Men. The catastrophic destruction of Earth is not imminent. It's nowhere no. close to imminent no. yet. Yeah. Well, except that part of the plan is that the Master is going to help them awaken all of the other bunkers. Yes. So that's where it could possibly be a little more threatening. We don't yeah. know how many bunkers there are. I'm still un- full of these people. Uncomfortable with it <laughs> as the Doctor killing at scale all the creatures in the base when we're that early on in the potential sequence. Well, yeah. I, I still think he's doing it because he knows that as long as they're, you know, convinced by the master this is what they should do, there's no convincing them otherwise. And that, it just seems off. Uh, maybe a little bit. He should be able to convince them otherwise or put them back to sleep. Or this is an occasion for the doctor to do something clever rather than something brutal. Possibly. That's interesting. In fact, I'm thinking about the end of the story right now, and it, it never struck me because on television, that ending is kind of action-packed. And when you're reading it, it goes by so quickly you don't think about what the actual stakes are, and then you realize, oh, no. they're kind of low stakes except for you know awakening all the rest of the uh, sea devils, and probably the Silurians well, at the yeah. same time. Yeah, whatever other... He could be unleashing both species onto the planet, and an unsuspecting planet at that. Mm -hmm. In fact, ha-ha. Yeah, just a moment. 
I, I just realized something. There is a new adventure book called Blood Heat in which the Doctor visits an alternate universe kind of like he does at Inferno. But it's an alternate universe where he wasn't able to prevent the Silurian threat. Okay. The third Doctor was unable. In fact, the third Doctor, he finds his own body in the cell that the Silurians left him in. <laughs> yeah. That's and even stupider, <laughs> even stupider, he manages to sink his own TARDIS in a swamp, and he takes the third Doctor's TARDIS from that universe which I didn't like too terribly much, but there you go. Hmm. Um, but the world has been dominated by Silurians and sea devils, and it's absolutely fascinating. Hmm. The sad part is, when we do get to see Joe Grant from that universe, she is a savage. And she has almost no language skills at all. Interesting. It's terrifying. Planet it's, of the Apes. Yeah. It's much more a Liz Shaw type of story, hmm. in fact. But, uh, yeah, and it's Jim Mortimer, so everybody dies. I have to reread it. <laughs> Either way. Either way. What else? Very small favor here at the beginning, but we have about mm, three to six times seen in the past a line, something like, goes something like this. And then the chauffeur drove our character in, and the chauffeur was a gigantic black man named Blackety Blackford. <laughs> And that's, that's all that character gets. And our perennial question to the writer is, what is your problem? <laughs> so at the beginning here where we have this lovely little short story that's only a page or two long about the destruction of the ship, which I macabrely love, this story where right. everyone dies at the beginning, there's actually this great antithesis to that trope that we've seen before. Okay. Uh, Mason could not believe that the men were dead. Only two hours earlier, before he turned in for the night, he had been drinking cocoa with the Jamaican. Oh, that's right. The Jamaican, who really came from Trinidad and had never been to Jamaica in his life, <laughs> had shown Mason a letter from his mother, who lived in a town called St. James. It's carnival next month, said the Jamaican, and she wants her best-looking son back home for carnival, and that's me. He had saved his airfare and was booked on a flight from London Airport three days after the SS uh, Pevensey Castle got into the port of London, where she was bound. And now the Jamaican and Jacques and goodness knew, knew how many others were all dead. Yeah. And it... I guess there is still the trope that he dies first. True. But there's this whole delightful little short story within a short story where <laughs> white people don't even know bother to know where he's from. And he is given some kind of personality. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, he flies in and out of London. They see him perhaps as, oh, the Jamaican, when he's actually Trinidadian. And very, <laughs> well, very modern, sophisticated in many ways, right. international party man. Mm -hmm. And you get a real sense of loss in just those three or four sentences. Yes. And, and they talked about that all the rest of the crew was dead as well. You get mm -hmm. this sense of five to 12 other people with similar backstories mm. that I True. thought was quite lovely. Yeah. And it gives you a real sense of the loss of the crew. Oh, yeah. And it's really only Hulk that ever does that. I mean, seriously, we were yeah. going to miss this guy when we are oh, not yeah. reading him anymore. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Plus, it's interesting that it also previews what London is going to be like in our time because, of course, you did have this influx of um, people from the Caribbean and from Trinidad and from Jamaica going into England and becoming naturalized citizens to the point now that the London accent as we know it is 
inflected with all of those rhythms mm. so it doesn't even sound like the cockney that we would have mm. the ben would have known from the 60s yeah, yeah. Mm. so yeah absolutely it's almost as if hulk is really at that at the, that stage of woke that we would want mm. dicks to be at well he sees character beyond gigantic black men that's <laughs> right. dicks's default yes. where there seems to almost always be a weird comment about the size of the guy's stature that Yes. Speaks to deeper anxieties, I think. Yes, that's true. Or Jerry Davis, who has that problem not only with blacks, but also with gays, apparently. But where that is the characteristic, oh, it's a gay, oh, yeah. it's a black, as opposed to, oh, there's this guy who's going to go party with his mom and yes. fly out at the end of the, mm-hmm. not deployment, cruise, what do you call it when you're on a fishing boat? Um, oh, God, the um, tour. Tour. Yeah, I think that's right. And then Mason himself is the last to go. We have this terrific sense of Mason who's not thinking about himself. We get the sense of a person who's so empathetic and worried about the rest yes. of the crew. Exactly. I thought he was a great point of view character. I agree. And then, and then, we, and then lose we lose him. him. And we never get him back. And that no. actually gives you an appropriate sense of loss. I thought it it's really hard does. to do with a throwaway. With a person who's literally not in the episode, Agreed. right? He's not in the episode yeah. at all. Yeah, in fact, that's that's when these Doctor Who books are at their best, when yeah. they're introducing people you will never see on screen. Um, well, occasionally it doesn't work, but that's it, only if you've got a lesser writer doing it. Right. Well, when the Doctor saves people, for it to really be resonant, you have to have a sense that they could be lost. Yes. And what's that episode we saw, or that we read about, where it was the first and maybe only episode of Doctor Who that didn't have the Doctor in it. Mission to the Unknown. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Where there was this sense of, oh no, if the Doctor's not there to yes. save them, they and all die. And, and they, they all die. And they also had distinct senses of personality and life yes. story and this tragedy of the sort of brain-eating disease that had befallen one of them and made them lose themselves. Yes, I have news about that episode. <laughs> I don't think I expected you to say that there were new developments about that episode well, that aired it, in the 60s. It has not been recovered. It has been redone by fans. Oh, you showed us the animation. No. I, I've shown you the animation. You did. Yes, yes, yes you I did, know. Sir. I have. I have. <laughs> well, there have been two animation animated versions done of it, but this is a live action version that's basically a shot for shot remake hmm. done by a university theater group that has just the resources to do it. Hmm. And they've done it 60s style as yeah. if it was mm. all done on in studio. And apparently it is going to be released soon, which is lovely but you're absolutely right and if you think about it ah god who wrote that episode it wasn't was it terry nation or was it dennis spooner i think it may have been terry nation which is terry nation's not known for his characterization but you're right the characters in that story are very distinct for the 25 minutes we have well and for it to be striking when the doctor saves people You've got to have a sense of genuine danger and some possibility of despair. Yes, exactly. And also <laughs> of of their personality, that they're individuals. He's not just saving sheep, but people with individual life stories. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, when we get to the new adventures, Christ, you're going to get characters that are literally there just to, say, remind the Doctor to do something, mm. but you get a full backstory for that character and then you get their death. <laughs> This is this is going to give something away. 
uh, the producer of the Somebody new show. Somebody dies on Doctor Who. It's well, terrible. Yes, it oh. Is, but oh, no. Now we know. <laughs> Ooh, shit asses you. The, um, Russell T. Davis. So angry. In uh, The New Adventures. And this is more for the listeners than the panelists, as ungrateful as they are, the bitches. Fi, Anyway. <laughs> spiking like crazy. Russell T. Davis, when he wrote this new adventure, it uh, the main focus of it was this form of cocaine that could be used as a gateway for aliens to come through to our dimension so if you ever sniffed it <laughs> they'd come through your nose i mean that it's sure better that than it cocaine sounds and not just cannabis it's better than it sounds really <laughs> but hello fellow time travelers tony witt here you probably are thinking as you're hearing me summarize the plot of that book what has he been sniffing because that's not what that book is about I got the cocaine right. What I didn't get right was what the threat was. It's a Gallifreyan weapon called the Enform that was created to destroy the great vampires and it gets corrupted and ends up in every gram of cocaine that's available in this community that uh, Russell T. Davis creates. Um, I also have to apologize for any inaccuracies in that last plot summary of Blood Heat because, as it turns out, Joe Grant is a savage and has seems to have no language skills only because she was on a mission for that universe's brigadier and was driven insane by the Silurians or something like that. Anyway, back to the stories. The prologue to that book is all about the waitress who waits on the doctor and his companions, and she does some coke on her break and forgets to wipe it off her nose. Mm. And she says that the little man in the boater hat, not the boater hat, the little man in the white fedora notices it and says to his companion, Chris, I wonder if you could get hold of some cocaine for me. Because the doctor is reminded that this is something he's got to do. This is an outstanding job of his or something. And we follow this poor character to her death by overdose by heroin with her boyfriend (laughs) that night. And her last image is of the doctor's eyes and it's just like this moment where you're like holy shit that's one that the doctor didn't save and yet Mm. if it hadn't been for her little you know problem then uh the story would not have unfolded the way it did touching Hmm. detail though i remember when i was very depressed in college there was a lecturer who had i don't remember if i ever had a conversation with him or not but he had the kindest, gentlest eyes mm-hmm. in a way that I found so comforting. Yeah. Person I had no kind of interpersonal relationship whatsoever. That's actually a really poignant detail. Yeah. To have. If and I'm, about if the I'm remembering she, it. Probably. She doesn't really know the doctor, but there was still something comforting about the yes. kindness. The human something connection like that. that she saw. Or that she remembers something connection. odd about yeah. him. And there was yeah. something strange, even as she's dying and she's realizing oh, this high doesn't feel right. And mm-hmm. she can't bring herself out of it because she's ODing. She's remembering the doctor. And it's like, <sighs> someone took the lessons of Malcolm Hulk to, uh, yeah. uh, on new board. heights. To new <laughs> I see what you did there, <sighs> you naughty boy. You. There are a few lines like that in this book. Like, do you have a tranny? I was wondering who was going to bring that one up. Do I have a what now or something? I'm sure that's transmission. But yeah. Transistor. They, they or transistor. That's it, a transistor. That's because exactly. in the story, part of the gag is no one knows what it's supposed to mean. Right. 
that's it. Or whomever. I think it's Joe is asking. It I could is. be wrong. And or she's addressing doesn't know the what The doctor means. and Joe have these wonderful, wonderful exchanges where he's talking about how he's going to make this radio into a uh, broadcaster. And he says, do you get the idea? And she says, as long as you don't ask me yeah, to repeat it. It's yeah. not a quiz, is there? <laughs> as long as you don't ask me to repeat it. I roughly understand it. but And at one know. point she shrieks. And he says, I know this discussion may be boring you, Joe. It's like, no, no, the master's out the window. That's why I screamed. I wasn't bored. It's like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just fun. It's, especially at the end of chapter four, they're kind of stuck there. And she doesn't freak out. She just reminds the doctor very quietly and calmly, doctor, we're stuck here. And there are these aquatic creatures all over the place, and we have no way of calling for help. Yeah. And it's like, oh. <laughs> and it's Joe telling him this. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, well, well we better do something about it. Sensibly using her training. This is yeah. not flying by the seat of the pants and being Jamie. This is... No. Or falling in a mud pit and losing your skirt. Yeah, so doing a backflip <laughs> through a flaming hoop and then <laughs> flashing your drawers. This is something like, this is... This is her using her training as she's trying to figure out how do I make contact? We don't have the equipment to do it. We don't have this or that to do it. Exactly. We've got to do something. Mm-hmm. Wasn't there some? There was also some wordplay in chapter three, and I just said the wordplay here is wonderful, and I can't remember what it was about, except that it comes right after Malcolm Holt calls him Doctor Who again. <laughs> again. I still blame that on editors. I it could be just unju- unjust of me to put that on editors, but I don't think any of these writers would voluntarily put in no. Doctor Who as a term of direct address. I think it's more that it's so early on in the target run that they are reminding the readers of the name, which is odd because the readers don't really know <laughs> to uh, be doing. I think it's that. I think it's that discussion that he has with Robbins about the boat. Maybe that's it? That and the fact that he... The Crimean he, War. Yes. And he makes Joe... He makes Joe carry his unit pass when he's got plenty of pocket room. Yeah. But he makes her carry it. It's like, Jesus. And then she, you know, steals the boat. Uh, this is not about the Navy, as I recall, but I was wondering if this bit of physical comedy uh, was in the episode. So this is actually the prison staff, not the naval base. Yeah, yeah. Trenchard spoke, but still without looking up. All right, Sharp, he murmured. Carry on. Sir, shrieked Sharp, saluting with force enough to knock his own brains out. He turned <laughs> on his heel and left the office. <laughs> Trenchard continued to write. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think it is. But it's lovely, isn't not, it? Not tremendous deference to the to the forms of of, of military decorum there. Very funny. <laughs> and his name is Sharp, and he's doing it sharply. <laughs> like shrieked. Yeah. Shrieked. Oh, my God. There's a lot of that stuff. Um, there's, <laughs> in Chapter 6, the Doctor accidentally uh, knocks out a knocks out a guard, and he's basically, did I do that? <laughs> Where did I put the poor fellow whom I knocked out? <laughs> what the hell? What just happened? Well, and also in terms of Hulk's uh, perhaps skepticism to certain kinds of authority figures. Prison official Crawley crossed over to the doctor and looked at him with the disdain he normally reserved for criminals in his care. All right, Sonny, you may think we're a big laugh here, but let me tell you this. The way I look at it, the world's divided into three groups of people. 
Those who have been in prison, those who are in prison, and those who will be going to prison. Got it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's definitely a new thing. I know Trenchard's line about one does not shoot ladies is new. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, my Man, God. Man, was there almost a direct Richard J. Daly reference in there? <laughs> What's well, really? No, Richard J. Daly's most famous quote is shoot to kill and shoot to maim. I think oh, wow. it's yeah. shoot to kill oh, my God. those attempting arson, shoot to maim any looters. But oh, shoot God. to maim was his really memorable uh-huh. phrase that he probably didn't plan to be remembered for. Yeah. But, um, but he has been. Oh, where was it? Yeah, it's about... page 95. Uh, whenever yeah. the doctor and Joe are trying to to escape again and he tells him shoot to maim shoot to cripple yes yes they don't, they don't, they don't want to kill them yes and then one of them is a girl one does not shoot ladies but yeah one shoot to maim shoot, shoot to cripple was pretty on the nose oh wow well and that was 68 or 69 yeah I forget if it was um, and it would have been in world news at that point I forget too. if it was I don't think it was the 68 convention I think it was when Martin Luther King was assassinated yes that does sound 68 right. or 69 this it is not long right. after that and I'm sure our readers will be able to look it up far faster than we can with people honking their horns I outside I am always up for a sick burn on Richard J. Daly yeah aren't we all speaking of which Oh, the people. Actually, that's the not audience furiously googling Richard J. Daly. No, no, no. <laughs> Who? The, uh, the um the illustrations. What did we think of them this time? They seemed a lot more uh, effective than they have been previously. Yeah. These are really great, including the nightmarish image of a sea devil claw or paw coming down the hatch and just shooting a gun and just going and killing all the all the uh, semen down there. Sort of contraceptive? No. You shit. No, I was talking about sailors, but... It would have been rude for me sailors. not to make I, that joke. It, it really would have been a dereliction of duty. I would dereliction, that's for sure. Anyway. I actually thought that the illustrations were probably a little too like the show, and the sea devils didn't look very scary at all, so I figured they were probably accurately rendered. Yeah. They sounded scarier than they were illustrated as being. A little bit. A little bit, which is really a shame because Hulk does give this book just this feeling of terror at times, which is just lovely. And, of course, that, you know, the setting at sea helps a lot, too. Uh... Enemy agent, said the master, laughing. He called out once more to the sea devils down below. Exterminate them, you ugly-looking idiot! <laughs> Fortunately, the sea devil could not hear from that distance. <laughs> and um, there's one other thing. It's not... I think Hulk may have come up with all this stuff about the doctor's temperature being 60 degrees and the breathing rate. I have that before. We have not had that. We've had the two hearts, obviously. Yeah. But 60 we, degrees... Yeah, we know was... that the doctor's body temperature runs lower, but this is the first time we've heard an actual number attached to it. Mm-hmm. And the breathing rate. Yeah. And I've heard those numbers repeated later, so this was... may be the first time we get them. I think Hulk came up with them whole cloth because they are not in any of the televised stories. He just decided. I'm sure our listeners will let us know if I'm wrong because you always do. These are the doctor's stats. (laughs) I didn't know if he was trying to draw a very rough correlation between, well, uh, 
I'm sorry. The fact, well, the concept of the cold-blooded reptile and the doctor. Oh. But then we don't have a scene of a doctor sunning on a rock to regulate his body temperature or anything no, like that. No, we don't. And the idea of John Pertwee sunning on a rock and nothing but a thong. <laughs> well, well, I know that's sexy to some people. I didn't take it there. People, but not, not to me not necessarily. To oh, my God. I have stories. I should probably tell them You've now. Lived. because they're tell No, us. no, 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 no. I have them um, fresh in my mind. Because Sean Pertwee... Mm-hmm. Was inter- interviewed in a recent episode. Uh, uh, recent episode. Recent. You did not invite no, me. No, no. Recent issue. <laughs> shit ass of Doctor Who magazine, and he told his recollections of Roger Delgado, and how Roger Delgado was and his wife. Um, I can't remember her name, but we'll hear about her later. Were constantly at the house when he was a kid, hmm. and Roger Delgado apparently was afraid of crossing the street. To the point that Sean Pertwee, as a little kid, had to take his hand and lead him across the street. (laughs) And the reason why I remember this is because the end of the story is different. Because in the film version, in this version, we've got the Doctor and the Master basically swimming to the surface. Yeah. Um, In the film version, um, Roger Delgado has to be in this kind of a dinghy with a life vest on. And you can't tell watching it until you know this about him. He was terrified of water mm. as well. So to, for him to have done that just took At sheer all. bravery. Yeah, Ugh. And of course, he was terrified of cars too. And that's how he mm. ended up dying in a car wreck. Wow. So it's like the poor guy must have just been just this bag of neuroses. But he managed to overcome them to create this amazing character. You would never know that the Master's afraid of anything except for the Doctor. Wow. He's yeah. not even afraid of the doctor. Well, he's afraid of the doctor laughing at him, remember? Well, we saw yeah. that in Mind of Evil, but yeah. Oh. Yeah. That that works so well with the character, though. The bravado to cover the actual apprehension. Yeah, it kind of does. That's probably why he was able to play him so well, because he understood somebody who's acting like he's so much more, more capable of what he's doing. Yeah. I've just got two full-page screenshots here of Trenchard's final sequence, which I did not realize was going to turn the way it did, because the first one is just the comedy of him calling the minister's office and being told that he's not important enough, and perhaps he would like to write a letter about the threat to the end of humanity. Exactly. Oh, it's a Perhaps you could write us, says the (laughs) It'll get here tomorrow. Yeah, it'll get here tomorrow. I just think, well, that's fantastic, like, rate for hand delivery. For, well, government (laughs) delivery, they probably had their own courier service, but still, (laughs) a day later. It's like, great, a day later and a pound short. There, there's so much here, as is normally the case for a Malcolm Hawk book. In fact, there's one thing that's missing, and I'm kind of sad about it. The Master is watching TV at one point when Trenchard comes in. He's watching a kid's program. And it's about these uh, kind of stop-motion alien puppets called the Clangers that have this kind of language. And it had already gone off the air by the time the, the book came out, which is maybe why it's not in there. Yeah. But the Master is watching it and enjoying it. And... He points it out to Trenchard, who comes in, and Trenchard says, Oh, well, that's just a children's program. And the Master's kind of not offended that he's watching a children's program, but offended that Trenchard is just dismissing it as a children's program. And it's this brilliant Hmm. moment of self 
self-awareness about mm. Doctor Who, but it's not in the book, mm. unfortunately, and that is really quite a shame. Interesting extraterrestrial life form. Only puppets, you know, for children. Oh. Another line from that final scene that struck me. Trenchard knew that everything he feared was true. (laughs) Yes. Were you talking about um, top of chapter 10? When Hart replies the way he does about the Navy... And even the doctor's kind of, like, taken aback by Joe bitching at him. Yes, and tries to sort of mediate the situation. Like, there, there. I think She's very feet, hungry and tired. I think her feet are hurting her, is what he said. Yeah, that's, that's, exactly, that's, it, yes. that's exactly what it is. After they walk the ten miles oh. to get back to the naval base. Well, but I do like the idea that the doctor can't really control Joe the way he used to be able to sort of shush mm. her. Yeah. yeah. Or get there, her dander there. up in a kind of manipulative way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. She's independent. She's feeling her oats. <laughs> yes. Well, and she also, she also, not only are the Navy people annoyed by the unit people, she's also a unit person annoyed by the Navy. She also feels a bit of that territorial competitiveness. Mm-hmm. That is. And the whole thing about the shoes, I do love that. Because, yeah, I, I must apologize for my young companion. I think her feet are hurting her. But it's <laughs> a little different because in the past we've seen her apologize for the doctor being brusque. So that's a nice little switch. It really is. And you can kind of see why Joe Grant is considered the ultimate third doctor companion because he only has, well, he technically only has, and she is to him as Jamie is to the second doctor as Ian and Barbara, I guess, are to the first. Would we think of them as quintessential companions for the first doctor? Yeah, probably. Yeah. More so than anything. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Anything else you want to say? Nice little amusing, engaging de- uh, details here where we have the uh, the minor official with his lunch of cold chicken, sautéed potatoes, mixed salad with French dressing, and chopped celery that was laid before him. <laughs> All Captain Hart's files and ink bottles and pencils have been removed from the desk uh, in order to turn it into a dining table for the man from the government. May I congratulate you, Walker said, bayonetting a, sli- bayonetting a slice of chicken on the prong of his fork on a remarkable <laughs> escape. <laughs> Once again, whole sort of delightful uh, condescension and disdain for yeah. minor functionaries. A lot of fun to read. Yeah. In a way, that can be just kind of gross and ugly sometimes, but he makes it fun. Yeah, he really does. I agree. Yeah. Although, on, on a, a little bit of a darker note, uh, mm-hmm. earlier when we meet uh, Walker... They're, they're talking. He says, this is a time of emergency, a time when we must all make sacrifices. Weak coffee will have to suffice. <laughs> yes. But then a paragraph later, he's talking about blowing up uh, where the sea devils are. He says, and Captain Hart says, the submarine is down there. The doctor, too, if he's still alive. As I said earlier, we must make sacrifices. <laughs> so it's kind of this idea that he's this higher up officer that is removed from his own actions mm-hmm. which is i could see hulk very much 
having a lot to say about that yeah. kind of person. So, so putting that in there, I, I feel like is kind of him taking jabs at, uh, you know. I would agree. I like to read this as a statement of a, of a sort of a unscrupulous network executive. Now let's release the ratings and start winning. <laughs> <laughs> is the rating just a sailor? A rating yeah. is a sailor. Okay. Yeah, that's what it is. Uh, as in uh, their rank, if I remember correctly. Oh well. So mm-hmm. hopefully this will be not as difficult to edit, but we'll see. <clears throat> uh, shall we go to Goodreads? I don't think so. Okay, as we always do. Let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline. So that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves, you may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is a surprising 3.55. Honestly, I thought it would be higher. Yeah. But then I'm always thinking that. Tom, in our group, gives it four stars and says, I like this novel, the elongated opening, and other slight changes give the story a little room to breathe. <clears throat> and feel more rounded than the TV episodes. The one question I would raise is why so much time and effort was spent introducing the concept of South Sea oil if the oil rig sections of the TV show were replaced with seaports being converted to solar power. In reality, a lot of places where seaports were built are now home to wind farms. The stretched-out demonstration of the prison security is perhaps a misstep that could have been nipped and tucked without doing any harm to the story. I always like the doctor not knowing which war to be a veteran of to be funny, but a little out of character. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Yep, yeah, but a little out of character for a seasoned explorer of the ages, but I suppose there's so many in British history they all get a little blurred. A swiftly paced romp that tightens the slack of a TV story that sagged in a few places. Yeah, this is a six-parter, by the way. Ooh. That's part of the reason why mm. it's a... Really? I believe Instead so. Instead of rushing between locations and yeah. yet taking a long time to get There's there. There's quite a bit of it. In fact, I'll have to double check that, but I'm almost certain it's a six-part. I don't remember it being brief. Michael, in our Goodreads group, gives this three stars, saying, ow. He didn't say ow. I somehow missed the <laughs> one. It. <laughs> I somehow missed this one in my collection growing up, but I listened to the audiobook when it was released years ago. As with all of Hulk's adaptations, it's fascinating to see him tell the television story in a different way than on the printed page. I recall enjoying how much I enjoyed Jeffrey Bieber's narration. He could narrate the phone book and it'd be great, as much as I did the story. Is is it strange that I heard the funky soundtrack in my head at times and was disappointed that the audiobook didn't use it a bit? Yeah, I agree. By the way, um, Jeffrey Beavers, we ha- we have not met Jeffrey Beavers yet. He's one of the later actors to play uh, the Master, so by the time um, this was done as an audiobook, of course, Roger Delgado was no yeah. longer with us, so Jeffrey Beavers was the one to... Uh, so it might be a matter of rights as much as artistic choice. Yeah. They just didn't have access or permission. Yeah, and they also wanted a Master actor to do it, so I mean, not? not using the original score. Oh, 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 oh I see what you mean. That's in fact that's exactly what it is, I believe, because they do new musical scores for those uh, episodes. I was right at six episodes. <laughs> Sorry, I had to look it up. And finally, Will Theo. I guess that's how that's pronounced. 
takes the minority opinion and gives this book only two stars, saying the writing is clunky and juvenile. For example, the judges had decided to sentence the master to lifelong imprisonment. They did not realize that in the case of a Time Lord, lifelong might mean a thousand years. The science is terrible, the background characters are stereotypes, the plot is slapdash and poorly paced, but nostalgia is a powerful force. Kind of cocaine's a powerful drug. And I love the third doctor and Joe Grant, so this gets two whole stars from me. Sorry life hurt you, reader. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so, Allison, out of five stars, what did you give this thing? Well, I give it two stars, but I give it two happy stars. Two happy not, stars? Not bellyachy stars like that person. Oh my, okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, two and a half. I'm two feeling, and a half. feeling magnanimous. No, I, I enjoy... Um, uh, Hulk's style a lot, his little details of characterization and humor. Um, and it would actually be a higher score if it weren't for that ending that just does not sit right for me. Yeah. And just does not seem like the Doctor in general and or like this Doctor in particular. Okay. Um, story dragged in a way that I understand was probably as much a function of budget as anything else. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I'd Good ride and a variety of vehicles. Um, so yeah, I'd say 2.5 overall. Good uh, good humor and dialogue for our regulars. And then that great little opening short story, which probably... I'm very easy to please with a good prologue. Yeah. Probably yeah. affected my overall impression of the story because I enjoyed the beginning so much yeah. that that actually overpowered the ending kind of blah for me. Yeah, okay. So I get that. Uh, yeah, definitely. Dalton? Uh, I'm kind of, I'm like waffling between like 3.5 and 4, so let's split down the middle, 3.75. Uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't hate this book. I just, again, like you were saying, the the ending kind of left me with questions. There were bits that I was just like, this is, it does feel kind of thrown together and like, I, I wanted more of the Sea Devils. I wanted it to be in a different location. I wanted... Just a little more. Yeah. But Malcolm Hulk does a lot with what is given. Mm-hmm. And he really expands on a lot. And, and kind of the bits of atmosphere you do get out of this are fantastic. But yeah, to me, this is just kind of... A, a, you know the scenes in Scooby-Doo where they run in one door and run out of another? Yeah. It's kind of, There's a bit felt, of that. In like that to me. They definitely get that. Um, so yeah, overall, not the worst thing I've ever read, but it definitely doesn't uh, hit me in uh, hit me with its best shot the way some of the uh, some of the other stories we've read. Fires away, but misses. So it doesn't yeah. sing the way I told you. It, was it shoots to. to maim instead it of shoots to kill. To maim. Okay. Um, no. And wow. Even yeah. even even you saying it sings it it does it does the in spots does. yeah yeah it's it's not a fault of Malcolm Hulk I think it's the story itself just it's kind of clunky and great it's style weird. not good substance yeah I can see that. yeah so that's why I'm like I don't I don't hate this but it's definitely mm. not the best thing we've read okay I get that <clears throat> yeah I'm at the same place really I'd give it a three point seven five. Because it doesn't quite rise up to the level of his other books. It doesn't rise up to the level of David Whitaker. It doesn't. Um, it's more like Terrence Dix when Terrence Dix is at his best. 
than it is Malcolm Hulk at his best. Burn. Well, that's not so much a burn as to say that, you that's know. That's the truth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I usually say Hulk is the most powerful there is. I'm going to skip that this time because this isn't one of his more stellar books. And it's kind of evidenced by the fact that you can find it on Amazon. You can find this exact edition of it for 50 cents. Hmm. What? Yeah. So, yeah, when we saw that last book was going for like 400 or something. So Jenny won't yeah. need to hand, co- hand carry a copy of this from Singapore for no. you. No, well, she wasn't going, she didn't go to Singapore, <laughs> but yeah, she won't have to take <laughs> this. Well, whatever overseas destination she traveled to to bring you Doctor Who. Books. Well, that was Japan. But in this case, it would be uh, Portugal. This cover does look like he should be standing outside of our window playing Peter Gabriel. <laughs> Indeed. It does have that kind of feel to it, doesn't Boom it? Boombox over his head. Oh, lordy. Yeah. Yeah. Although I think this is supposed to be the ray gun. Yeah, that's supposed to be the ray gun. But it just looks like it a could speed be a, a radar gun clocking your speed. <laughs> <laughs> they found their place in the society. He really just uh, wants to check my breathing and heart rate. Yes, that's exactly so. it. Okay. Well, I'm done. Lovely. All right. Well, thank you guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we discuss another book by the late Terrence Dix, The Mutants. Not the X Men and not uh, that form of mutant. The mutants, not the mutants. Not the mutants, no. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in order with no spaces like a crazy person. You can also visit our mostly pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dw target bc. Feel free to watch videos over the first 12 episodes. Give us a thumbs up or comment on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash umperdolic forward slash videos. Follow us on Twitter. We're at dw target bc. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it usually does, email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. Our new thing by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel at tinyurl.com forward slash y32b8f55, along with many, many others. Give him a follow and a thumbs up. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Yeah, these uh, these lovely golden caftans they appear to be wearing. (laughs) They could be yours today for twenty nine ninety nine or three easy payment. (laughs) I do like the colors of this though. It's kind of yeah. Their design's weird. They don't look threatening, but they don't, and they look even worse when they come back. Well, (laughs) we are spoilers. I have material. Do you really? <laughs> All right, well, a bit. Uh, okay. Not like a stand-up routine. All right, so I have actually not seen Joker, and I don't know if I will, because on the one hand, there are things I'm interested in. On the other hand, I don't know if I want to get
give her the money. If that makes right, sense. Right, right. Uh, so I saw Give Me Liberty at the Music Box this week in a theater oh. with seven people. And I think it's already off, so it's not in a theater near us now. Oh. If you want to see a movie about a put-upon white guy and an agent of chaos, it's an action comedy that actually ends up being dark commentary on society. It is phenomenal. Who's in that? Because I think all I've seen unknown. That. A lot of non-professional actors. Huh. Hardly any release at all. Wow. It's about a guy driving who lives. He's a first-generation Russian immigrant who lives with his elderly grandfather with dementia and like a retirement high rise. Oh, wow. And he drives a disability van all day. Jesus. And a lot of it is really funny. It's oh, okay. Stunt driving and him trying to get people from one destination to another while the dispatcher yells at him on the phone. As they do. And it's. Actually very stressful because it's so frenetic oh, wow. in a way that's actually very cathartic that I think that you might relate to a lot of his huh. put-upon nets and whatnot. Uh, but well, sort that of, would be me of the white man put-upon. Well, but also this <laughs> modern stuff about his guilt-based family unit. Oh, we immigrated uh, here. It was all for you. And what have you made of yourself? You just drive a van around all day. God. And, um, Poor Mike Gates. No, it's actually a, well, it's a really nice sort of modern life, low-budget action movie if that makes sense. It's it a does. lot of fun. Okay. So. You heard it here first. Give or maybe liberty. you didn't. Yes. Okay. And off we go.